Welcome to Raiders of the Lost Podcast, the ultimate film and TV podcast. We are your hosts, James and Anthony. Let's talk about Memento. Hello, movie friends. Welcome back to the show. It's time to talk about the last Christopher Nolan movie that we have left on his filmography. Anthony is so excited. Look at this kid. He is fired up. I love Nolan. You know, you all know how yeah. much we love Christopher Nolan and his films, and we're so excited to finally talk about Memento, which we barely even discussed. Just brought it up here and there. Just like here we did and there. We did like the Christopher Nolan director spotlight a long time ago. Did we? That's like the only time it came up. Yeah, we did a spotlight on him. Yeah, I don't even remember. Yeah, back in like 2020, <laughs> dude. It was like episode like 20. Um, but Memento is an incredible film, obviously written and directed by Christopher Nolan, based on a short story by his brother Jonathan Nolan called Memento Mori IMDb this is an 8.4 out of 1.2 million ratings so it is a very well liked movie it came out in 2000 it's a top rated movie on IMDb user ratings list at number 54 Rotten Tomatoes it is a 93% critic score 94% audience score it was nominated for best screenplay for Christopher Nolan as well as best editing for Dodie Dorn Oh, that's the first. Uh, I think they did. They're the only editor aside from Lee Smith that's worked on his movies. Because since um, Insomnia, Insomnia, he's had Lee Smith as his editor. Gotcha. And also, this is the first collaboration with him and Wally Pfister, who shot all of his movies up until um, Interstellar. Interstellar. Yeah. The last one he did was Dark Knight Rises, and then he started directing himself. So Nolan, he actually found Pfister at a film festival. His film following went, was entered into the Slam Dance Film Festival in L.A. And then Fister, Wally Fister shot a film that was also there, and they both chatted and liked each other's work, and then that's how they began their collaboration. He, he hired Fister for this because they met at that festival. True, but also cinematographer Mark Vargo refused to, or he didn't refuse to, but he turned down an interview with Christopher Nolan to be the cinematographer on Memento, but because he didn't understand the script, he turned it down. And then, and then Nolan went to Wally Fister, who's actually a camera operator for, for Vargo in a previous film, mm -hmm. And I think this is one of his, his first features to be a DP I think it was on, his first feature. Possibly. Yeah. And then Wally Pfister, after they made the film, was like, I didn't understand the script either. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you passed up on a, on a diamond man, on a it, gold mine. It is a great and highly unique script. It's, it can be confusing for a lot of people on their first viewings. And it's one of those movies that I feel like I've seen it 10 times. We just rewatched it for the first time in a while. And I was still on the edge of my seat in the third act. Like, oh, I can't remember completely how it ends. How's it going to end? But, like, the story structure is so fascinating. And it follows this character, Leonard, who has suffers from a condition where he can't form any short-term memories. And so he's trying to also solve the mystery of his murdered wife. But it's really fascinating. It's a great film noir, but also light at times. It's like Chris Nolan has great comedy as well, and you see that in this film. But the, the writing is phenomenal. The short story that his brother wrote was a little different. The character is actually in a mental institution that entire short story, I believe. I believe it was just Sammy yeah. is in the, the short story. And then, like, they, they took a road trip from Chicago where they moved to when they were, like, teenagers to so, Los Angeles. So Jonathan was a kid and Nolan was a teen and Chris was a teenager when they moved from the UK to Chicago. And that's why Jonathan Nolan has an American accent. And Christopher Nolan has an English accent because yeah. he's like 10 years older than him. Something like that. And so on the drive to Los Angeles together, Jonathan Nolan basically told him his idea for the story. And they kind of worked out the screenplay together just verbally. And then Nolan wrote the screenplay. But the, the screenplay and book are kind of different. And also, the screenplay was published after the movie came out in GQ the, magazine. The, the story was published. So after. technically, it's not an adaptation because it hadn't been published yet. But it really, the short story's the basis of the film and also the nonlinear storytelling is so incredibly well written and well done because we have two storylines going on at the same time. We have a black and white storyline that's going forwards through time as well as a colored storyline that's going backwards through time until the two storylines finally meet around the third act of the film to finish up the movie. And the reason for this structure is actually completely vital to the story because this is just a, a very typical run-of-the-mill film noir murder mystery. We've seen this so many times, but the, the way he shows the story and plays out each scene, no one had ever done it like this before and still hasn't really been done like this, watching a film in reverse and playing the story out from the first scene as the last scene and the last scene as the first scene. It's still in a league of its own in terms of like actually trying to do it. And it's just so much to wrap your head around. Like it's impressive that he had it all in his head and was able to film it and make it make sense. 
But the, he didn't just do it to just be like, oh, I'm going to do a movie in reverse. No one's <laughs> and, ever done this and before. And forwards at the same time. Everyone's <laughs> going to be like, whoa. It wasn't just a gimmick. It's actually vital to the story. And it really, the reason for it is because it makes the audience understand Leonard's mind, understand Leonard's perspective, where when you're watching a scene in this movie, what you what you watch you don't know what's gonna you know what came after it because you're like so say the first scene we watch is the final scene of the movie we don't know what's gonna happen next and so every time a scene starts we have no idea where it's going we have no idea what's gonna happen and we have no nothing to set up this scene so in a normal movie you see the scene that lead scenes that lead up to a certain scene but in this film we don't see the scenes that lead up to each scene so each scene for the audience is like a scene for leonard where he has no idea how he got here, what he's doing here, the audience is in the same shoes as the character. And in a lot of ways, it was really the only way to tell the story to make it feel like you know and understand what Leonard's going through. If it was just a traditional chronologically ordered scene um, structure for the screenplay, we would have understood, yeah, he has short-term memory loss, but we wouldn't have felt it. We wouldn't have been in his shoes. We wouldn't have known what it was like. But because every scene that starts, we have no idea what came before it. We feel like Leonard. Exactly. Just like Leonard, every time he goes into a room, a bar, a hotel, he's like, have I been here before? Who is this person? Do I know them? Let me check my photos. And that's why the photographs are such a great way to give subjective information to the audience because this whole entire film, it's like this balance between subjectivity and objectivity, facts versus memories, as well as facts are being well, not altered. Exact fa more, uh, it's notes versus memories. Yeah, yeah, but so. facts yeah. that are subjective as well. Mm -hmm. So the fa the notes and facts themselves can be subjective because they are made by Leonard at specific times when he he has to basically depend on people to be honest with him. And it's a really complex character because he trusts people so much, like Natalie or someone or even Teddy he's very skeptical of. But he's trusting other people to give him correct information and not take advantage of his handicap, which is really interesting to put that much trust in people, which is how the basis of your life is, operates off these notes. Yeah, and I would say he puts trust in his notes more than he does in people because if a note says this person some, is someone you can trust, he'll follow that. If he writes in all caps. Yeah, and then so, so a great example, I'm glad you said that, is when Teddy tells him to write down that note, which he does about Natalie and... And Leonard's like, I don't like what you're saying. He writes it in in lowercase in like this angled font, which shows that it, in his mind subconsciously, Leonard is saying, already telling him his future self, this isn't trustworthy information. And then we later, because we, we start the movie seeing this exact photo with this text crossed out. We don't know what it says. Then we're, we finally reveal that he wasn't, he didn't want to listen to what Teddy was saying, even though Teddy was right and he was telling him the truth. He didn't like what he was hearing. And so he can be, Leonard himself can be extremely flawed and he can be subjective in what he wants to hear. And in a lot of ways, he doesn't want to hear things that he, he doesn't want to hear things that don't support his direction of where he wants to go. So that's an example of the note taking, which he relies so heavily on. It's a very flawed system in a lot of ways. And Teddy points that out multiple times in the film. Also, just to keep going on that. You know, Leonard's a very ironic character, and we'll get to the twists and everything in a little bit because I'm sure some people still don't fully understand the movie, and maybe they're confused about who Sammy Jenkins is. But in addition to facts, there's this great concept of basically facts versus memories. And Leonard, his former job before his incident, before his accident, was insurance claims investigator. He investigated people who took out insurance claims, insurance policies, on conditions that they had, disabilities they had, whether they got it from work or something, to investigate whether they were le like faking it or whether they needed the money actually or, or whether there was some kind of con going on. And he was investigating this person, Sammy Jenkins. And he goes on and on multiple times about the comparing memories versus facts and how memories are flawed, their interpretations. He says, cops don't take a testimony for memories and just make up a bunch of memories to go investigate a crime. They take facts. They make notes just like Leonard does. He's created the system for himself to be able to survive and continue this investigation to try to discover who killed his wife and find that person and murder them. He says facts are undeniable. But Leonard's basing his entire life off of memories of his wife, which then become warped and changed and are unreliable because he forgets the fact that spoilers coming abound that he was actually the person whose wife 
had diabetes. He's basically Sammy Jankus. He was Sammy Jankus. He created Leonard because he destroyed Sammy Jankus during this, this whole life he created after his wife survived their attack. He got his head injury, and then he killed his wife because she wanted to test the insulin thing out on him, whether or not he was actually faking or not, whether he still loved her or knew what was going on. So he created Leonard after this. So his entire life, based on facts, because he says memories are unreliable, is so ironic because all of his memories are unreliable. Another Nolan dead wife. Woo. <laughs> <laughs> it's the start of the trend. Yet another one. The start of the trend. <laughs> <laughs> Always a dead wife. But it's a really ingenious concept and, and a terrific twist because we we fully believe in Leonard's past, because he's t- he's talking to uh, who we I I would believe is Teddy on the phone. Yeah, definitely. He Teddy. keeps calling him officer. It's got to be Teddy, and then he meets him in the lobby. Yeah, because this is like the establishing of the relationship. Because Teddy was investigating his wife's death, so Teddy was the investigator, and Leonard was never investigating Sammy Jenkins' death. It was Teddy investigating um, Leonard's wife's death, and so it was so terrific to basically completely fool the audience because it's not just like oh I'm tricking you with a twist. Leonard has fooled himself, and Leonard has made himself believe this new reality. Either it could have been the injury messed up his memories, or he's just blocked out the memories and and modified them to make himself continue moving on and to give himself purpose and motivation for living his life because this life that he's living is is almost nearly impossible, but he's only able to do it because of of the skills he learned from his his, um, experience in the past. So... I think that it was so great to have this twist that came out of nowhere because you full, wholeheartedly believe in it that Sammy Jenkins was a real person and not Leonard because Leonard believes that so wholeheartedly. And the way he talks about Sammy Jenkins, he clearly looked down upon him. And, you know, when we go back through his warped memories of him being the investigator investigating Sammy when it was someone was investigating him, obviously, at different points in his life, he talks about how Sammy had that look of recognition for him every time he knocked on the door, even though he'd met him multiple times. But he said that even though Sammy couldn't remember anything, he saw like a look of recognition, which he finally realizes to realizes later on that he only does that because he's being polite. He's trying to like get a bump up in the relationship. And like when you ever have an interaction with somebody, you kind of like, oh, do I know this person? Let me be polite. So yeah. that's always what he was referencing. But there's a great little um, single frame of, of Leonard in Sammy's seat after the death of his wife when he's in the mental mental institution and Sammy's just sitting in the chair just looking at all the people passing by seeing if he knows anybody and there's a single frame of Leonard in the chair where Sammy is to prove that Leonard was Sammy Jenkins and he destroyed Sammy Jenkins and Teddy says twice in this film like that used to be you. You used to be Leonard, but now you're somebody else. That's not who you are anymore. When Leonard talks about himself, I'm from San Francisco. I was an insurance claim investigator. You're not that person anymore. You've created something else. You are technically, you are a villain now, and you're kind of just creating this mystery over and over again and putting yourself in this endless loop to solve a crime that you already solved. Yeah, you can see there's a, a lot of inspiration he had with both David Fincher and um, I would say with uh, Tarantino. So Tarantino with the story structure. In the filming style, he uses the anamorphic lenses, the right, the same film stock, and uh, a lot of Steadicam work in this film. So clearly inspired by Pulp Fiction. Reservoir Dogs, too. Yeah, the Reservoir low budget Dogs. Filmmaking, yeah. everything. And then also with Fincher with the editing. So that edit of just putting Sammy in the hospital room for just a frame. Obviously, Tar- I mean, Fincher did that a bunch in Fight Club. So you can see the inspirations he had from both those filmmakers. Also the memories... The, the frames of a memory that Fincher used in Seven at the finale. Also, just great editing techniques. So you can see the inspiration he had from those two great filmmakers in their work in the 90s and how influential it was for him. But there might be something that is that can be a little confusing for audiences that um, is explained quite a bit in the film, uh, but it could go over someone's head. So wh- if Leonard can't remember that anything... How does he know that he has to take pictures of things? How does he know that he has to write notes down? Um, because every time he wakes up, he discovers like all these tattoos. And I mean, to him, there's just like a camera there and there's just like pens there. How does he know this system? Like, because every hour or so, it's roughly maybe 30 minutes to an hour or sometimes it, it adjusts. It depends <clears throat> on how focused he is. Yeah. If he's very yeah. focused, he can remember Remembers, something a little yeah, longer. Yeah, just like Sammy with the with the uh, insulin shot. And it also seems like a bang triggers him to forget his memories as well. Yeah, as well. Exactly. So how does he know to take photos of people? It's not like he was taking photos of people before he lost his memory. 
<clears throat> what's ha what happens is he explains multiple times, repetition and routine make my life possible. Repetition, repetition, repetition. Eventually, he's done this enough times where he's it's just become like just like drinking water or eating food or taking a shower. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Or taking photos of people has become such a repetitive and routinely thing in his life that he doesn't even think about doing it. He just It just, it just becomes part of his behavior as a human being under the surface subconsciously. So that's why... Even though he can't remember what he's doing, that's why he knows to take pictures of people. That's why he knows to write down notes that seem important for situations because of repetition and routine. Now, let's talk about exactly the incident that caused Leonard to lose his wife and his memory. So he had just he had no mental health issues, no mental disabilities until the night him and his wife were attacked. Now, his wife did have diabetes, and he did was the person who was giving her insulin every day for her treatments. And then in the middle of the night one time, they were attacked. The people who attacked her, her and them were just, they are described as two junkies that were strung out that didn't even know that she lived with somebody else. They thought she lived alone. And they attacked her and in the bathroom, and he managed to come in. He had a gun. He killed one of the attackers, but there were two assailants one of them pushed him into that mirror, gave him the head injury. He lost short. He, he no longer can make short-term memories. Now, the condition that Leonard suffers from is called, uh, oh, I got right here. It's called anterograde amnesia, the inability to form new memories after damage to the hippocampus. Now, what, what? Well, obviously, Leonard was attacked by somebody else, and because he suffered a brain injury, and no longer could form short-term memories. None of the police would believe him that there was a second assailant and also because he could no longer form memories he forgot that his wife survived the incident she survived the entire incident and they lived a somewhat decent like normal life until his condition they lived the sammy jenkins life the sammy jenkins life with the wife who wanted her husband back and every and she just needed an answer and you know the insurance claim sales the insurance claim investigator was investigating leonard until the point where his wife couldn't take it anymore and gave him the final test of the insulin where if he really doesn't have any short have any memory anymore he can't form new memories i'm going to test him with his, the insulin every 15 minutes say i need a new shot and obviously she goes into a coma from an overdose and never wakes up so leonard is sammy jenkins that's why he destroys sammy jenkins and also he doesn't remember his wife surviving because he could no longer form short-term memories and teddy was one of the cops assigned to this case he wanted to help Leonard find justice, and eventually they found the guy. That's that Polaroid, the bloodied Polaroid, where he's so happy he's pointing to his heart covered in blood. That was when they killed John G., the real assailant, who's just some guy. It was not this big conspiracy against Leonard or his wife or anything like that. And since that, obviously Teddy and other people have been taking advantage of Leonard's condition to help them solve problems for themselves teddy's getting a score from this guy jimmy g it all fits and so teddy is using leonard to make money and solve crimes and stuff like that because he's a crooked cop you could say and then natalie's taking advantage of him so the entire situation with jimmy with uh jimmy g the bartender the drugs everything like that the two hundred thousand dollars that's all unrelated to the killing of the the vengeance that they already achieved and teddy tells him like i thought you would remember we did it. We found the guy. You I killed thought it him. would stick. It didn't stick. You didn't remember. So I figured, why not just keep this going? Why not give you purpose in life? Because Leonard needs something to do with his life in terms of purpose. Otherwise, he doesn't see his life worth living. And the the the, the finale of the film. What's interesting about the structure of the story is so in a in a in a script you have a big act which is which happens in the first act, big event which happens in the first act, which sets the story into motion. Some big thing happens. And then the life of the lead characters or character changes and they go on a journey because of the big event and catalyst. And then you have the climate. So Fight Club, the the, the apartment explosion is exactly. the example. Big, big event. Matrix, the taking the red pill is the big event. And then you go on this journey. And then, the, then there's the climax near the end of the third act, which is the finale 
um, and then the re resolution happens after the, the climax. In this film, it's reversed, but also it works both ways. So the end, the beginning of this film is the climax in the movie when he kills Teddy. The climax is the big event. So the big event is when Teddy reveals that we already killed the guy. Uh, you don't even know who you are. This is the, f the finale of the film, but technically the beginning of the story. But it's structured to be the climax. And then the big event was the climax of the story, but it's structured as the big event. And also the opening of the film, not only is it the climax and ending of the story really, but it's also a, a reversal. So the opening's really brilliant where it's just the Polaroid photo that's reversed. You know, this is kind of like this opening shot and opening scene, it looks like it's from Tenet. This is clearly <laughs> obviously when when Nolan made and then his, the gun pistol yeah, when Nolan made his first film following that's told nonlinear story structure so he's starting to play with time but Memento he really got interested in playing with time and opening a movie with a reverse like this is really fascinating I've never really seen anything like this still to this day nothing really is, compares to it it seems like a scene from Tenet you know the the bullet moving off the ground into the chamber of the gun, which is really fascinating, just like Tenet so many times. You <laughs> saw that in that movie. And then the, the Polaroid photo becoming undeveloped as he's shaking it, and it's reversed because all you, anyone who's a Gen Zer, these, these, these cameras are called Polaroid cameras. They are very common for a couple decades. Dad had so many of them. <laughs> we took we, a lot of Polaroid, Polaroid photos. photos. But they're fun because you could write notes on them. Now it's like yeah. kind of like a a trendy thing to do. It's like, a nostalgia thing. Now people get thing. Polaroid cameras to take photos of with their smartphone. They take a photo of their Polaroid photo. <laughs> it's true. It it's true. And they'll like tack it to their walls and stuff oh, like that. Yeah. But this is like how a lot of people use cameras is just to like for family events or whatever. But you could write notes on them, which is really cool. And just to reverse that with the development of the film shows also how he can no longer form memories. That's a great metaphor for Leonard's mind. He can, even though he can take a photo or make a memory it's eventually going to fade away just like the photo is re fading away as it's reverse developing going back into the camera. It's, it's a really great metaphor for the entire film. And just like we say all the time with, with Nolan movies, he gives you the rules for his movies within the first act, within sometimes five, first minutes, five minutes. He's telling you yeah. the rules of how the movie is going to play out. We talked about this in depth with The Prestige, with Inception, with Tenet. Interstellar, Tenet for sure. Within five minutes, just like The Prestige, the opening scene, he's explaining the movie, how it works. Michael Kine. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, what's interesting about this film is it's it's a very L.A. movie, especially in the valley where we used to live. Uh, like Studio City, North Hollywood, Van Nuys. It's definitely all those neighborhoods. Seems like all over Van Nuys. Yeah, yeah. and it just it just feels really cool because like he, uh, he likes to set his movies in L.A. Inception, there's a lot of stuff happening in L.A. Uh, because I think he, he lived there for so long and also for Probably this. still lives here. Yeah, for shooting on a low budget. This is like really interesting for him because obviously following he just made with him and his friends, super, super low budget. But this was still relatively low budget. It's interesting to see his filmmaking technique and his storytelling techniques with such a minimal amount of money because now we're used to Nolan having massive budgets. Insomnia was 40 mil, so that was a big step up for a budget. And then Batman Begins, he probably got like a buck 50. This was 9 million and he made Nine. $40 million at the box office. Wow, it's very successful. That's the thing with Nolan. All of his movies are profitable, every single one. They've all made money, and some of them have made boatloads of money. But this 40 mil return on a 9 mil investment plus DVD sales are probably terrific for this film, as well as the rentals in the 90, in the early 2000s. It probably was an extremely profitable film. But it's interesting to see his his filmmaking on such a small scale and such a minimalist approach to you know sets. It's, it's lots of motel rooms, lots of parking lots, lots of just random streets. He was making use of cheap environments and locations but still crafting a really interesting story like now his sets are gorgeous and he has some of the best production designers cinematographers costumers working on his movies but it still feels like a nolan movie especially with the the film stock and lenses he used in this they they still look like a lot of his other movies his latter films you know except for the prestige which is i think because the period setting it really changes things but it still feels like a nolan movie even because like when you look at like Wes Anderson, his early films, they're not the same as his films now. And when he developed his his final style, his last uh, five movies are a lot different looking and feeling than his first couple movies when he was still trying to find his voice. Uh, There's still hints there, but it wasn't like fully formed Wes Anderson. But I feel like a lot of Nolan's tendencies and his style as a filmmaker are definitely seen in this. Obviously, he couldn't do everything he wanted to do, 
because of budget constraints, but you can still see, oh, this is definitely, it looks like a Nolan movie. Yeah, and how do you make an entire movie about hotel rooms? Yeah, so many hotels. hotel rooms. Yeah. How do you make it interesting with nonlinear story structure, with having a storyline in black and white going forwards and a colored story going backwards? It works. And we we're, we spend an hour of this movie in hotel rooms probably. <laughs> oh, yeah, like that, at least an hour, 45-minute runtime. More than half the movie is inside motel rooms, in hotel rooms, of a narrator speaking to himself. And, and Leonard's an unreliable narrator, which makes him so fascinating. But I love the approach where... Of course, the the colored one's going backwards in time, and the black the black and white's going forwards until it converges. And the way he shot it and filmed it and wrote the script is Leonard on the phone. It's kind of like a documentary or interview feel and aesthetic and vibe in terms of we're getting great exposition, but it's not forced exposition down our throat. It's kind of like interview format. It's kind of like when he he played with that in Interstellar. With the opening of that movie is like an interview with all these elderly people. Like, who are these old people? Like, yeah. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was like, is this a movie or a documentary? <laughs> are we actually like around space, like up that deep in space? Um, so, but that's what it feels like when Leonard's on the phone, obviously talking to Teddy the whole time. It feels like an interview for the audience to understand the rules of how Leonard lives his life, what happened to him, and how he's kind of figuring things out. But also at the same time, He's probably done this five times with uh, Teddy. Yeah, because Teddy goes, Let, let's, look, let's go look in the basement. Like, how many bodies are in the basement? We found plenty of John G's, James <laughs> G's. Like, they've probably done this five, six times. It's yeah. been years that they've been doing this, and Teddy's taking advantage of him. But I think Teddy just, like, he, he likes him so much, and he feels so bad for him that he, he needs to give Leonard purpose. I, I would say... To get his to get his wife's killer initially, but now he's just no. Now that yeah. that does the first okay, time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, now now it's for purpose. Now and, Leonard's a money making machine for him. Yeah, because exactly. he's just killing drug dealers for him who have huge scores on them, and then having so, Leonard do all the yeah, investigating. Exactly. <laughs> so he does all the work for him. Doesn't remember what he did. And I really like the the transition he made from when the black and white storyline and the color storyline converge, and he makes the transition from black and white to color. And then we learn, oh shoot, now this is happening in real time it was it's a great little thing reminds me of tarantino with kill bill that he when he did that with beatrix blinking her eye during the crazy 88s fight mm -hmm. it's a really great technique that's pretty rarely used like ever but it works really well and it worked perfectly in that moment in this this film it's, it's highly subjective you know it's a, it's a first person subjective experience our narrator is experiencing everything subjectively whether it's a memory or whether it's what he thinks are facts with his photographs, with his notes, with his tattoos. Many of his tattoos are incorrect information. For example, at the end of the film, he decides to make Teddy his new John G. You're a John G. You can be my, my John, John G. G. He makes the tattoo fact, fact number six, license plate. It's Teddy's license plate. Um, so, so, but there's one little loophole that I saw in this movie on the rewatch is like, how does he know it's number six? How does he know it's tattoo fact number six? It's five. Or no, it's, well, it's, well, whatever yeah. the number is, how does he know? Because he already has up to four in his body? No, but he's, short, he's got short-term memory. But it's on his body, though. Well, he's not looking at it. He looked at it in the morning. I'm just saying, it's like a, a little tiny loophole. Well, get out of here, man! <laughs> I'm just kidding. You can... One little one little. No, thing. but I will say the loophole there is he writes the I and the one the same. Because in the license plate, there's an I and there's also a one. Mm -hmm. But he writes them with just one straight line. So how does he know which is what? Yeah, exactly. That's one thing. Yeah, one yeah. little thing. And what I love so much about the storytelling, and it works so well. So many filmmakers are afraid to do this these days, I think, because many productions, many studios, they're just telling us information all the time. They're just telling us, not showing us. And they're afraid to refuse the audience information. They, they don't want to challenge us like movies like this, which is why this is number 50 all time on IMD user rate. so rewatched probably, yeah. It's challenging the audience every single time you watch it, whether you've seen it one time or 10 times. Every time you watch it, you're still being challenged because Christopher Nolan, just like Leonard being denied information, we're being denied information. The entire film, we're being denied information just like Leonard. We're being denied who characters are, whether Leonard knows them. Where, whether he's been at places, whether he knows the guy that runs the hotel at the, at the at the lobby or anything like that. So the fact that you're being denied all this information forces us to pay attention, forces us to really engage with the film and the characters and the storytelling and really listen to the dialogue. And it's a great mystery. And I think that I wish more films did this. A lot of filmmakers still do. I mean, we have great filmmakers out there, but the average film 
I feel like 20 years ago, challenged audiences much more than they do now. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it makes you feel like you have short-term memory when you watch the movie. I, yeah, some, I was like watching, like, hold on, wait, what happened exactly? Yeah, <laughs> see it ten times. But once you just give into it and stop like questioning it, you can just let it happen and play out. All of your answers will, all of your questions will be answered. Now let's go to our intermission, and then there's still so much more to talk about so with much Memento. More, so much more. We didn't, we didn't even get into the Matrix reunion. Yeah, we haven't even talked about the cast yet. We really brought Chris Nolan. <laughs> now. Before we continue, the best way to support Raiders of the Lost podcast is to share us with your family and friends who love movies as well. Tell them about the show. Send them the Instagram, YouTube, Spotify, Apple, YouTube, whatever. Send them (laughs) stuff. All of it. Everything. Also, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost podcast. Every patron has access to a weekly bonus episode that only patrons can see. We have $2, $5, $10, $25, and and $100 tier patron tiers. So you can support us at any level you want. $10, $25, and $100 tier patrons get access to our Discord where we interact with you all the time. We have watch parties on there. It's such a huge, fun community. Everyone has just become friends on there. It's really great. It's It's really really beautiful. It's it's really great. $25, $100 tier patrons get a custom episode. You pick the topic. We do it for you. And then $100 tier patrons, you are the chosen ones. You also get your own personal watch party. You get to become an executive producer at the end of every main episode. You will hear your name. And also, after three months in that tier, you get to come on the show for a fun guest segment. It's done a bunch of times. It's a blast. Patreon allows us to do the show full-time. Thank you so much for the support around the world. It keeps the lights on. Can't thank you enough. This episode is sponsored by our friends at MoviePosters.com. Use our promo code Raiders10 to get 10% off your order today. MoviePosters.com has a huge selection of all sorts of movies and TV shows in their poster library, as well as options for backlighting, framing for all of your poster needs. We have a bunch of these posters all over our set and in our home. They are high-quality prints, super affordable, especially with our discount code. They also do free movie poster giveaways with our fans. We just gave one to a fan, a Rogue One poster being sent to the philippines right philippines now is incredible yeah. yeah and we we do this every uh, bi-monthly so we have a great partnership with this company we love movieposters.com the best place to get your posters online use our promo code raiders 10 to make sure you get 10 percent off your order today all right let's head into our intermission let's do it you ready anthony I, ready. I got a pretty easy one but i but i think it might stump some people but uh it's it's a great one i couldn't resist so i had to do it <laughs> ready ready hold on let me uh let me try to do an impression <clears throat> Let me get my voice ready. Where is it? Where is my... Oh, I'm on yours. Hold on. Oh, did you just look at my... I did not read anything, I you swear. You just saw my whole intermission, guys. I swear to God. You just saw the whole thing. I'm gonna get... I only put Ant on my profile document. Anyways, it says Ant. Ready, here we go. I know I've made some very poor decisions. <laughs> <a> great job. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I know I've made some very poor decisions recently, but I can give you my complete assurance that my work will be back to normal. I've still, the, I've still got the greatest enthusiasm and confidence in the mission, and I still want to help you. Hell. Yeah. 2001. Yeah. Space Odyssey. Good one. What are you doing? What are you doing, Kyle? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Here's my quote. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he did not exist. And like that, he is gone. He's gone. <sighs> Kaiser Soze. It's the usual suspects. <laughs> great job. Good one. It's a great quote. All right. Guess this movie release year, Anthony and listeners. From Russia with love. 1962. 63. Oh! Dr. No is 1962. I'm such an idiot. You are. <laughs> I think Dr. No is 62. I hope so. This is the first one, but <laughs> sounds right. <laughs> the Graduate. 67. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Right on the money. Let's two go. for two. Let's go. Two I for didn't two. even need 19. <laughs> Actually, I was wrong. It's not the year 67. It's 1967. <laughs> what is 1967? Exactly. Movie pop quiz time. All right. Catherine Bigelow has made, I believe, 10 feature-length films in her career, as well as documentaries and shorts and videos and stuff like that. Who starred in her first feature-length film, The Loveless, which came out in 1981? The Loveless. Bill Paxton. 
You have any idea how much I've sacrificed? <laughs> Willem Dafoe. <laughs> <laughs> Just keep your mouth shut about stuff you understand. <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm lucky, I'll become half of what he is. <laughs> I know you're an important man. I understand. <laughs> Harry, I, he said he even when he was that young, his voice was still the same, and he looked like he was sixty. <laughs> He's one of those guys who just yeah. always looked middle aged. When he was in his early twenties, he still had this like crazy voice. Yeah. It's amazing. He has an amazing voice. Yeah, he it came out in nineteen eighty one. That's a long time ago. He's probably about like sixty five years old, something like yeah, that. Yeah, he's up there. He's up there. He's ma he's making a Yorgos Lanthimos film right now. That's crazy. Yeah, I can't wait. To, I want to see his new one. Uh, Inside it looks awesome. Yeah, it looks great. Okay. Here's my quiz question. Who wrote The Usual Suspects? Oh, sh I know this. Does he? Does he really? <sighs> Who the hell was it? We'll see. Who the hell was it? You really like this writer. He, was, he, turned, in, he turned into a director too, right? Possibly. Possibly not. God damn it. Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe fuck yourself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I'm going to feel so dumb when I don't get it right. Um, let's see. I don't think he's got it. Just give up. <sighs> Crap. I feel like... Because I... Singer didn't write it. Nope. It's not Shane Black. Nope. It's not... It's not a comedy. <laughs> <laughs> it's not set in Christmas. Just give up. I give up. Tom Cruise is a new guy. Ah, uh, Macquarie. Macquarie wrote That's it. That's right. Yeah. That's right. He's uh he wrote a bunch of films before he started making yeah. movies. God damn it! All right, on this day in film history, today is November twenty fourth. It's also Thanksgiving in America. Happy Thanksgiving, y'all! So I hope you're enjoying your time with your loved ones and away from work and school. That's always the best. In nineteen thirty three, Fred Astaire's first film, Dancing Lady, is released. I believe that also Tom Holland's about to be in a movie about Fred Astaire. Very cool. 1948, Bicycle Thieves is released. 1979, Salem's Lot, the miniseries, wraps up in the United States. They're making a movie about that for 2023, which should be cool. Starring the Bob from Top Gun Maverick. He's going to be one of the lead actors in it. Can't remember his name. Sorry, guy. I'm sure he's a huge fan. Huge fan. 1990, <laughs> unsubscribe. What's unsubscribe. Whatever his name is. He used to be a huge fan. <laughs> in 1993, Mrs. Doubtfire is released. In 1999, Toy Story 2 is released. In 2010, Tangled and Burlesque are released. In 2017, Call Me By Your Name is released. Hell yeah, uh, every time. Hell yeah. Every time. <laughs> in 2021, Encanto, True, True Story, and House of Gucci are released. Happy birthday to Stephen Merchant, Colin Hanks, and Katherine Heigl. I guess someone subscribes. Let's go. Who we got? Evan Smith wrote... I guess you could say Manscaped unsubscribed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we got dropped. Manscaped unsubscribed from the show. <laughs> Sorry, we didn't, we didn't hit the return on, the, on investment. That's, that was a good one. That was a good one. It's okay. They had, we were locked in for two and a half years. Yeah, they, they, they helped us for yeah, a long time. We, we still love Manscaped. They were very supportive of our show. Yeah. We got lots of body wash from yeah. them. They're, they're, <laughs> I still, honestly, I love their stuff. Yeah, I, still I still use, use it. it. Uh, Crash a Coyote wrote... Wait, you're telling me Wakanda is CGI and not real? Unsubscribed! Unsubscribed! <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people think it's a real place, or I used to think it was a real place. Really? Like, there's a, I can't remember where it was, but it was a great video there. Like, Google search results for, like, Wakanda vacation homes was, like, <laughs> at, like a, at a huge search rating back when uh, Black the first Panther, one? you know, when it first came out, a lot uh -huh. of people thought it was a real country. Oh, wow. So they were, like... Can, we're, like, it Air, looks really nice. It was there. like Wakanda Airbnb was like a, a really highly searched item on Google for like a whole year. That's great. That's <laughs> and they, great. And then they're like, oh, wait, it's not a real country. Okay, <laughs> moving on. <laughs> um, stream recommendation from me today Tenant on HBO Max. Revisit it. It's so much better than people say. And watch our episode on it because we explained it for an hour and a half and you will not be confused after our episode. I love dude, I, I don't love understand it. the hate for Tenant. I really don't. I think I think just some people are sick of like they just think of like the being confusing on purpose as a gim as a gimmick thing. And that's how they look at it. You know, like, oh, he's just trying to be confusing just to fuck with us. Listen. No, it's just it's all it all makes sense in the way he crafts the storytelling. So I love it too. I think it's amazing. My string recommendation is Florence Pugh's new film, The Wonder, on Netflix. It's actually uh, a really good movie. I watched it last night. It's about she plays a nurse in the 1800s in, in Scotland, and she she goes to visit this village where this 
a young girl has not eaten for four months straight and is still alive. And she's there to help investigate and figure out what exactly is going on. She's great in it. Is it based on a true story? No. Gotcha. Yeah. I keep seeing stills of it on, online, so and people say it looks... Florence is great. She has this great, um, like, northern English accent. It's very she good. She is so good. She yeah. already wrapped Dune. I was reading an interview with, or with, like, Timmy the other day. She wrapped Dune. He said she's incredible in it. She doesn't have a huge role in, in Dune Part 2, but she's a, an important character going forward. <laughs> but no, just saying that she's on top I of it. I thought you were going to go into her character. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're saying Florence is well, playing. Well, anyways, uh, she plays Princess Arlon, uh, the daughter of the Padishah Emperor. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was expecting. Um, because she's been on fire the last couple of years, man. And I, I think she's just the actress of her generation. She's turning into that right now. She's up there. It's like her and Zendaya are just so talented and just on top of the world. They yeah, do anything. she's an extremely talented lady. <laughs> Very talented lady. All right, that wraps our intermission. Let's get back into Memento and actually talk about people other than Christopher Nolan for a little bit. We got the Matrix crew here. Yeah, yeah, for sure. We, we got, got Carrie Ann Moss and Joe Pantoliano, who are terrific, and Carrie Ann Moss was cast in the film, and she recommended Pantoliano after working with them, and they got along really well on Matrix, and she recommended him to Nolan and producer Jennifer Todd. And I think what I read, Nolan was unsure about him playing this role because he basically plays, like, villainous antagonist. Yeah. But he ended up doing a really good job of making it feel like a really fleshed out character, not two dimensional. He's a great actor. He's yeah. so good in the Sopranos. What what year was he? Like the seasons he was in the Sopranos, like three and four. So was that, was that the late nineties, right, or the early early two thousand? Two thousand. So yeah. that was after this. But I think he's awesome in Sopranos. But he's great in this in this movie. He's really incredible. That also in Daredevil, he's great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, he's the journalist, right? Yeah. <laughs> Iconic performance. Oh my god, can never forget him as the journalist. But um, Teddy's a very ambiguous character, and he brought that to the table of whether or not. Leonard trusts him and the audience trusts him because we're we're kind of in Leonard's shoes the entire time about how to feel about characters. You know, at first you trust Natalie until we find out that she's taking advantage of him just like Teddy's taking advantage of him. But Teddy, you know, Teddy, you can tell, actually cares about Leonard. He doesn't want anything bad to happen to Leonard and doesn't want to get arrested for killing random people and drug dealers because <laughs> Natalie starts to use him kind of like Teddy was using him at the same time. And so he's being used to... He gets him out of that problem in the hotel room. Yeah, and yeah. she and yeah, and the Dodd situation as yeah. well. So Teddy's a friend, but you don't know that until the end of the movie. And even after Leonard learns all this information that Teddy is his only friend and has helped him and helped him find the real John G and kill him, he still doesn't care because he's like he's pissed off and he's subjective about all the information he's getting, even if it's true fact. Even the, he's getting a fact, he's getting factual information from Teddy. And even though he's he saying- He gets the photo. He's saying memories yeah. are unreliable. He's now making facts unreliable and subjective on purpose to create a mystery for himself to solve. Yeah, and because Teddy, you're like, when you're watching this movie for the first time, you're like, why is this guy trying to be best friends with a, a person who has no short-term memory? Like, what does he get out of it? Then we learn that he is getting a lot of money out of it. But the end- No, you get half! You get half! <laughs> <laughs> the ending is amazing, though, because Leonard chooses to become this basically vigilante of his own design, where he learns the fact that he did kill the, the man who responsible for the death of his wife. Um, and it wasn't not the Jimmy. Death of his it wife. wasn't Jimmy. I'm sorry. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't Jimmy. It was John G. And, Len and Teddy even shows him the photo of him pointing at his chest, so happy because he had just killed the man responsible. I took that picture. For, and yeah, he goes, I took that picture. He was there. And you can see that Teddy was like, he wanted that just as much as Leonard did. And he was so disappointed that the memory didn't didn't stick and that the memory faded away from Leonard's mind. And then I think Teddy realized, you know, I could use this guy to benefit myself. But what's really fascinating about Leonard is he he keeps saying that the Sammy Jenkins couldn't Sammy Jenkins couldn't live because he didn't have purpose. And so Leonard says that he can make this life possible because he has purpose with routine repetition and he has something he's working towards. So if he doesn't have something he's working towards, he will become like a stuck in a mental institution, unable to live. And so he's creating, he keeps creating new John G's to give himself the ability to live because when he's, when he's investigating something, then he can survive, then he can live on his own, then he can just keep going day by hour by hour, or memory by memory. And he just keep moving forward. And so he chooses to kill people that he knows in the moment aren't the right guy, but he knows he'll forget about it. And so in 15 minutes, 
even though so even though right now I'm writing Teddy's license plate, I know he's not the responsible for the incident at my home, which took my memory away. I know he's not the guy, but in 15 minutes I won't know that. In 15 minutes I'll have this note and this license plate number. And I'm getting tattooed on my thigh. Yeah, and and he knows that, and he purposely tricks himself, tricks his future self to investigate new people. It's a really fascinating decision that he keeps doing. He's probably done it several times, choosing to to investigate someone that he knows isn't responsible for the attack on his wife, and yet he just wants to keep doing it. And he just becomes um, basically a monster in a lot of ways. I agree, yeah. It's it's a great character. And the editing for this movie is really exceptional because it's complex. If it's not edited well, it, it wouldn't have worked. And it's edited so precisely to make it extra interesting with the two storylines, one forwards, one backwards. But also, the backwards storyline, what they do so well with the editing is they they basically bookend every scene of Leonard. It's kind of like it's kind of like a bunch of short stories of yeah. like a couple day period. And We'll go so like he'll go through a scene, and the the, it, the scene plays out, and it's bookended with the opening of that of the end of that scene, which we saw at the opening of another scene. So we'll see the opening of one scene as one scene concludes. Go backwards, and then we see the the conclusion of that opening from the previous scene at the end of this new scene that we're seeing, which is going backwards. So it's really complex, but every scene is kind of bookended by something we'd seen before, yeah. which is really for interesting. Ex- for example, one scene opens with Pantoliano jumping on the windshield, saying hi. That's how one scene opens. And the next scene we see, Joe Pantoliano jumping on the windshield is the final moment of that scene. So we get to see this is how the scene started first, and then we get to see how the scene ended next. It's so interesting, and it, it, it creates really fun and engaging moments, especially, I think, like... The shower one is great. That's he, a great one. He wakes yeah. up on the toilet with a bottle of, of whiskey in his hand. He's like, I don't feel drunk. And he's like, ah, I smell. he smells himself. I, I stink. I need to take a shower. This is probably my hotel room. I'm safe. I'm going to take a shower. <laughs> then someone comes into the bathroom and he attacks them. And then we find out that was from the previous he, scene. We yeah. just saw the guy in the closet. He, he tracked down and, and hid inside his hotel room. And so we him. saw the ending of, we saw the, the, this was the first scene of the previous moments that we saw, but now it's the finale of this new scene in this new little chapter. Yes, he ha- he has great moments of humor in the in the film, especially in the middle part of the film. That's I think that's hilarious. It's, a, it's such a funny scene because it's ridiculous and it shows you how ridiculous this man is. And when he's he's yeah. he's like he's running, he's like, oh wait, where am I? I'm running. Yeah. Okay, I'm running. Uh, I I must be chasing that guy. So he starts running towards him. Then he st- starts shooting at him. He's like, yeah. oh, never mind. He's, he's chasing, chasing me. <laughs> and also he uh, goes to kick down Dodd's door and he kicks down the door of some innocent guy, knocks him out. <laughs> and he's like, oh, this was room nine. I need to be at room six. <laughs> like little things like that. Nolan in all of his movies has always had, he's not, he doesn't make comedic movies, but he always has good humor sprinkled out through all of his films. Yeah, he's a funny guy. Yeah. You know, I, I think he seems to have a great sense of humor. He, he definitely does. I mean, if you see interviews with him, he's very articulate and clearly an intelligent person, more intelligent than than me for sure. But he's still <laughs> no, very, he's a smart guy. Man. He's very funny. And like the movies show that he's not like just creating comedic situations, just great lines that work so well. And also, speaking of the cast, we have to talk about Marvel star Guy Pierce. <laughs> <laughs> this is an ongoing joke, a new one. Marvel star, because he's in one Marvel movie. If you don't know, this is based off of uh, Marvel star Kate Blanchett. Blanchett headline after she was after get, Tar after yeah. Tar came out. Like Marvel star Kate Blanchett's new movie. She's in one yeah. Marvel movie, just like Guy Pierce in one Marvel movie. But anyways, Guy Pierce is exceptional in this role. He had to lose a ton of weight, like real quick, to play this part because Leonard's Leonard's a really skinny guy, which makes sense for the character. But c- because you can assume that because he can't form short term memories, he doesn't remember when the last time he ate was. He just has to go by, oh, I'm hungry, or like, I, I, did I eat today? Probably. I should be fine. So mm-hmm. that, I think it really fits the character of being very skinny, as well as he puts on Jimmy's suit and the suit's too big for him and stuff like that. So I think it really works. And Carrie Ann Moss is terrific in this film as well as a supporting actress. She has some great dialogue. She and But her character is really complex. She is also, like Teddy, using Leonard, but also she helps Leonard, and she relates to Leonard, and she knows something's not right about him because he, he's driving the jag, her, Jimmy's Jaguar and wearing, wearing Jimmy's clothes, and she doesn't know what to think of him, but then she realizes this guy, he doesn't know what's going on, but I can use him to track down what's hap- what happened to Jimmy. Um, but she plays it with a great amount of charm, but also like this villainous quality, um, a great amount of dominance. Like when she, that scene when she uh, 
basically d- dismantles his entire his entire life and just berates him and says like I can say whatever I want to you and you're not going to remember it. She keeps calling him terrible names, but she made sure to take get rid of all of the pens in the area and in her apartment, made sure that he didn't have his pen on him so he couldn't write down anything about the situation. It's a great scene. And then she goes outside and then waits like five minutes and then comes back in and and uh, he's like, oh, what happened to your face? Are you okay? Uh, I think that character- Jimmy Leonard. Shit, Jimmy. Shit, Jimmy. <laughs> Jesus, Leonard. <laughs> she's really, she steals every scene she's in. I think she's a very talented actress, and it was a great addition to the cast to have her. She really brought a lot of three dimensionality to that character. She's not a good person. Yeah, she's, she's nah, kind she's of. She's an evil person. She's, she's, she's a. She helps drug dealer. Yeah, she's yeah. using. She's using Leonard after she under, She learns about his condition and taking advantage of them, and and it's crazy because even like after that incident where she eventually lies to him, they they sleep in the same bed together. It's it's terrible what she does to him, but everyone in this movie is basically using Leonard except for. Bert, who runs the hotel, the hotel manager. He's using him. Yeah, he's using him. He's oh, yeah, using him. his <laughs> boss. His boss. Yeah, yeah sorry. He's, he's, got, he's in part He's got using two him. hotel yeah. rooms t- checked out under his name because yeah. he, he forgot his key. Yeah. Everyone probably... everyone uses Leonard. Everyone does. Mark Boone Jr., he plays Bert. He's in how many Nolan movies? He's in all the Batman You don't movies. like falafel? <laughs> <laughs> he's only in Batman Begins. Just, no, I thought he was in Dark Knight. No. Is he I'm, not? No. Just, just Matt Vimigans. But he fits the bill. So, like, yeah. I, I like how Nolan always works with similar actors and the same actors over and over again. Yeah, he has, uh, I believe he had a huge role in Sons of Anarchy. Yeah. He had a huge storyline. Yeah, became, he's big a, in that, became in that a big actor because of it. But he, I think he fits the bill for, uh, he, he's just a great addition to the cast because he feels like, oh, this is a, just a guy you know. It's not like some super chiseled actor. You know what I mean? It's yeah. important to have a great supporting cast surrounding these. Like, look like normal people. Absolutely normal, normal people. Because, yeah. you know, Gary M. Moss and Guy Pierce are 10s. <laughs> <laughs> They're both hot as F. Pantaleano's an 11. <laughs> <laughs> Especially with that mustache. Ooh, Ooh that mustache. Teddy. Though. Teddy. <laughs> Teddy. But Guy, Guy is incredible. He's such a great actor. He's so underrated. A great Australian actor. They produce just great talent out there. I don't know what it is. It's <laughs> great, great acting Is it stock? the water or something who knows what it is but he fits teddy so well he, he plays it so well i know brad pitt almost took on this role but it didn't work out because of scheduling conflicts thomas jane was considered some other more popular actors nolan actually has been a fan of aaron eckhart for a while he was he, up for he, it too he, he was his uh first choice actually aaron eckhart but that didn't work didn't out work out but then he obviously cast him as harvey dent but guy pierce he said he was most impressed with in terms of auditions in terms of he really liked the quality that guy pierce brought to the movie of not being a very famous person at the time and you know this one got him a, a great career in hollywood for sure he's a very talented guy but you know this is my favorite guy pierce role i think it's his most memorable and leonard is just so he's so likable at the same time as just the ambiguity and mystery behind him even when you find out he's just a terrible he's he's not a bad person but he's become become a villain almost kind of a soulless just vigilante killer stuck in this loop he's a murderer you know and that's why Tay says you're not a murderer that's why you're so good at it because <laughs> he's not he's that's what he's turned into leonard is this new persona this new identity sammy jankis is the one he left behind and you also have to understand that every time he, he every every time he loses his memory which can be like within five minutes or within an hour depending on the situation the first thing he remembers is his wife bleeding on the floor of the bathroom unconscious thinking she's dead that's the that's the everything every time he a new memory begins forming that's the last thing he remembers and so you can understand that that would be highly motivational for him wanting to get vengeance wanting to get revenge and even when he learns that he did get his revenge, it's still not good enough because he knows he's going to forget that. And he just kind of is like not even a, a, a person anymore. He's just like, just a, exist. He He's like a ghost in a lot of ways where he's just moving through life completely without forming anything. He doesn't, he can't have a life. He can't have anything, but all he can have is his investigation. And so I think he just never wants to let go of investigating. Now, how does Leonard who cannot form short-term memories, know all this information about Sammy Jenkins when he was being investigated by the claims insurance, the insurance claims company and the investigator for them. How does he have these memories of Sammy failing tests, failing the shock treatment tests with the objects, the insulin situation with his wife? Obviously, it's because Leonard has this giant file. He has this giant file of medical information of Sammy Jankis, and he's just taken on the persona that that wasn't me. 
that was somebody I was investigating until my injury. And it's the 15 pages missing from the police report. So, yeah, but exactly. That's how, yeah. but that's how Leonard can process the information every day that, oh, I was investigating Sammy Jenkins. Remember Sammy Jenkins? He was going through this. He's the one that accidentally killed his wife with the insulin. Not that wasn't me until later on. So I think that's a that this maybe a loophole that people think of like how does he know all these memories of Sammy Jenkins and who Sammy Jenkins was? And then obviously he was Sammy Jenkins, which was proved in the movie with the frame of Leonard sitting in that chair. And also like there's great little shots. Like there's a shot of his wife sitting on the bed, and at first we see he pinches her thigh. And she's like, stop it. But then we see the truth of him giving her her insulin shot on her thigh. And so it's like he's the memories are there, but they've been they've been changed because they're unreliable. Just like how just like how Leonard tells Teddy memories, you can't trust them. You can only trust the facts and investigation and the notes. His own memories are completely unreliable. Even the memories he has has of his wife. It's so ironic. Yeah, he says that the color of a car can change. And it's just like whether there's a needle in his hand or not can change. It's really complex and really clever and really well thought out, this script and the story. It's it's so well written. Um, I think it, it might be Nolan's best script. It's up there for sure. In terms it's of, so unique. In terms of his, like, where do you rank it for your Nolan movies? Well, what's interesting about this is, especially with great filmmakers, because I really lo- I love all of his movies and I really love this movie, but it's a lot of great filmmakers, they have probably their best, if not one of their best movies, very early in their filmography. You know, you get PTA with Boogie Nights, you get Tarantino with Pulp Fiction, you get Spielberg with Jaws, um, you get Mar- Scorsese with Taxi Driver. You know, these are all-time movies in their filmographies that happened very, very early in the career. And this is his second feature. But I- ironically, so what, what makes him a different, and I think Wes Anderson can is pretty similar, where I think his movies get better every time he makes a movie. Uh, whereas Wes Anderson, I think his his the peak of his of his career so far was Grand Budapest, and he made that was like his eighth movie. And with Nolan, I think that most of his filmography I would prefer over this film. Even though I really love this film, if I had to if I had to rank his movies, I'd actually put it quite low on the list. But it is you could say one of his most original ideas and his most impressive screenplay. But in terms as in terms of a movie, like I love his other movies more but i do really love this movie it's, it's just hard but i think he's it's different from those other filmmakers where they had like they it's like a musician having their best album in like their first or second releases it's usually an easier like yeah. choice to make but like wes anderson i think you can really compare to him where his movies get better as time goes on yeah, and fincher's yeah. similar as well where you know aliens of alien 3 obviously isn't his best movie but like well, actually, I mean, Seven, Club, seven, seven it might be his best movie. So Seven, okay, he, Fincher falls into the category of seven. like of those other great directors. No, yeah, I agree. And like Tommy Wiseau, one of those great early <laughs> hits. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, The Room, come on. <laughs> this is this is Chris Nolan's The yeah. Room. But like, uh, you could say uh, Terminator 2 is James Cameron's best movie. You could. It and it's his be. second, it says, it's actually... It's what well even Terminator could be one of his best movies. Aliens and these are very early early in his career. Yeah, absolutely agree. It's it's hard to rank Nolan's movies. He's made what uh, ten movies, so he's made following won't count because there's such a low budget and just independent film. Then Memento, Insomnia, Batman Begins, The Prestige, The Dark Knight, Dark Knight Rises, Inception, Interstellar, Dunkirk, Tenet, Tenet. So he's made ten movies, about to be eleven with the Oppenheimer. I love every single one of them. I even yeah. like following. It's a great movie. I mean, when you when you're trying to rank like even a top five, like you gotta put you gotta put Interstellar in there. You gotta put Inception. You gotta put Dark Knight. You gotta put for me Batman Begins. Dunkirk, yeah, Dunkirk's incredible. I mean, the it, Prestige. The Prestige. Is I incredible. love the. I, I love the Prestige. I fucking love the. Did prestige. I put the Prestige on my list? You didn't. So eleven. So he's made. How dare you? I know. I love the Prestige. He's made eleven movies. He slipped that one in between Godfather and Godfather <laughs> Part Two, didn't he? He slipped that between Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises. Batman, Batman Begins, Begins and Dark Knight, Knight, which is crazy. Um, so he's made so many great movies; it's almost impossible to make like a top five list for me with Nolan because. Yeah. But, I, but so you see what I mean? Where he 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 improves as time goes on. True, but but still, there was something to Nolan's filmmaking when he was working with lower budgets. I think compared to obviously, I love his big budget movies. Tenet was like a two hundred fifty million dollar production. It was awesome. It was so cool. Interstellar was a huge production. I love that. But still, when you when you go back to like Memento and the Prestige, even Insomnia, 
even Batman Begins is a smaller budget compared to his recent films he's been making. I mean, Oppenheimer is going up to like $250 million budget, $300 million budget as well. There's something to his filmmaking process and storytelling with the smaller budgets. I think The Prestige is the best example where he's working with like 40 or $50 million, something like that. And it's just the storytelling is different. He's more dependent on story structure and storytelling versus great sequences, which are still really cool. Like you don't it, need action sequences yeah, with a small budget. When you think of Inception, you think of the set pieces and the action moments, not necessarily the structure of the movie. You think dialogue. of like the scale of the visuals. And the concept. Yeah. It's really fascinating and incredible, and I love Inception. But there's something about like Memento and the Prestige where he's operating with much smaller budgets and the story is supreme versus spectacle being kind of half of his style. You could argue that the prestige is his best movie. It could be. It, it's that, that's an argument that could be made. I love that movie. It's uh, so me good. Me too. And then with Dunkirk, it's just basically all um just visual action, not just action action, but like, you know, just physical action things happening. It's not so much story as it is um sequences. But it's 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 so hard to rank his filmography and I don't even like to do it, but I don't know, man. I love all of his movies so much, and it's hard to it's hard to put Memento over a lot of them for me. Screenplay-wise, it's one of his best. Yeah. It's a top-five screenplay in his filmography for yeah. sure. It's the only one he's been Oscar-nominated for. Uh, he still doesn't have a Best Director nomination, which is wild to me. Absolutely insane. <laughs> it's, it's, it's crazy. Fucking like, what the fuck? No, he got, he got director for Dunkirk. Dunkirk, I'm sorry. Okay, you're right. But that was his first director nom. Yeah, 2017. That's a dude, long time. Dude, dude makes Inception, The Dark Knight, and Interstellar. No nominations. <laughs> Isn't that wild? It's nuts. It's insane. Nuts. He made, like, so he made nine movies by the time he got nominated for Best Director, which is crazy. There's just a lot of directors out there. And, you know, it depends on the year, I guess. But Memento is a really brilliant film. It's so well-liked. I don't know anyone who doesn't love this movie. 8.4 on IMDb. That's huge with 1.2 million ratings. 1.2 million ratings. So many movies come out every year. Everyone's obsessed with the IMDb score, but it's based off like 30,000 ratings, 100,000 ratings. But like movies like Memento, they stand the test of time because for 20 years, people have been rating this movie. 1.2 million. That's a ton. And it was so many people. And I feel like it was more authentic ratings. Like, oh, I really, I did really like Versus it. You're not one... just like review bombing me because you like the studio. Yeah, no, yeah. No, yeah. So basically now with the review bombing with so many movies, just because you like the movie, you give it a 10. Or yeah. just because you didn't like it, you give it a 1, which yeah. is crazy. It's yeah. absurd to me. It's, it's yeah, it's just reviews have been pretty unreliable nowadays. And it's, it's but like this is when, you know, if it was bad, it's bad. If it's good, it's good. And you could really trust the IMDb rating. But it got threes, fours, sure. Yeah. But the but the eights and nines and tens. But yeah, because like nowadays, people I saw reviews of recent movies where people were like, it was messy and it was kind of muddled, but it's still a nine out of ten. It's like, how are you giving it a nine out of ten if you just said it was messy? <laughs> <laughs> what? That makes no sense. Give it a seven. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I saw one. It was a mess of a movie, but ten out of ten. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> or DC's back. 10 out of 10. <laughs> F Marvel, 1. Yeah. 1 out of 10. <laughs> no. Screw Marvel, 1 out of 10. This isn't Tolkien, 1 out of 10. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's getting, it's just getting it's ridiculous getting silly. But this is, a, I think, when, when there's a million ratings of a movie, you can really trust it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Because there aren't a million review bombers. There's like 100. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it can change the rating big time. But this movie's special because there's nothing like it. There's no other movie that is even in the same realm of what this movie does. And I think that's something really commendable for the millions of films that have been made globally. Like, there's nothing like this. A wildly original character, yeah. too, with this this guy who can't form short-term memories is just covered in tattoos that he has to discover the truth that his wife was murdered by some guy named John G. And he's just following this breadcrumb trail of clues that he's left himself with Polaroid photographs and tattoo facts that he believes are facts and the subjective reality that he creates that pushes him forward on his mystery and his his crime solving spree which turns into if you think about it, he's just in an endless loop so even the concept of not just going forwards and backwards in time with the story structure but leonard traps himself in a loop and you could say part of the reason for the motivation of that is he never feels the catharsis of resolution and the, the relief of of finalizing his investigation so that's why he just because he can never even though he did it he never he doesn't remember the catharsis he doesn't remember it being solved and so why not just keep going and he refuses to believe the fact that he's yeah. the one that caused his wife's death with the insulin yeah. he was the one with the memory problem he was sammy jacus yeah he, he, he constantly wants to blame someone else exactly he doesn't want to believe it anymore it's such a great character i, I have some great fun facts if you want to hear him i would dude i would love to hear some fun facts in the limited edition dvd 
It allows the movie to be watched in the exact chronological order of the events of the film. However, the version of this movie is difficult to find on the DVD. You, the user must answer several questions and even solve a puzzle in order to we have the enable, DVD. Yeah, it was it's, like it's, it's cool. like a, a book. It's a file case that's a, like that you can open up uh, like a blue file, and there's like different medical records from Leonard inside of it, and all mm -hmm. sorts of like secret little Easter eggs in the menus and stuff. It's cool. Yeah, it was a cool. It's a cool DVD. During Debbie, during Teddy's line, you don't have a clue, you freak. Director Christopher Nolan felt that Joe Pantoliano did not quite nail the end of this line, so he decided to re-record the last two words to his liking, delivering them himself. Therefore, in the final film, the words, you freak, as we hear them, are actually being said not by actor Joe Pantoliano, but by Nolan impersonating Pantoliano's voice. It's actually not the only time he's done ADR work for his movies. In Tenant, he's the one that does like the... <laughs> Like the breathing, the yeah. sequences of going back, going backwards in reverse. Mm -hmm. to, reiter to reiterate how memory changes things, some overlapping shots between the loops use different takes of the same scenes, while others use the exact same shot to show how memory can change based on your interpretation of it. <clears throat> the blood coming out of Leonard's head at the in the basement in the bathroom scene when he is hit in the head by his wife's attackers was Guy Pierce's idea as well. Chris Nolan thought it would be too, a bit too much to show the blood, but then he decided that after seeing it shot on film, it felt like his mind was leaking out, and it felt like his the end of his past self. That's a great next metaphor. up, Christopher Nolan's white Honda Civic can actually be seen parked next to Leonard Shelby's Jaguar at the motel. Chetty's number is 555-0134. This is the exact same phone number as Marla Singer in Fight Club. And tons of other movies have used this number for characters. It's really cool. Yeah. It's like a recurring trend in, for filmmakers. Those are all uh, cool facts. All right. Well, that wraps our episode on Memento. We really what do we talk about? <laughs> we should edit this in, in backwards and reverse, reverse it. <laughs> Thanks so much for tuning in. Become a patron at patreon.com slash Raise the Lost Podcast. If you're in America, hope you're having a wonderful holiday with your family and friends and loved ones. Safe travels. If you're not in America, hope you're having a great normal day. Normal Thursday and great weekend. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be too jealous. Take care, everybody. <laughs> Bye, y'all. This episode of Raiders of the Lost Podcast was executive produced by our chosen one patrons. Luke Exelston, Tyler McFly, Darren Singleton, Anthony DeMeo, John Agraz, Becca Keene, Cody Moen, Benjamin Cook, Calvin Cam. Raiders of the Lost Podcast is a mirror image production. Sound mixing done by Jacob Kosler. Opening music by Chase Jackson.